0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: Starry decisis, starry decisis, friendly neighborhood starry decisis. Okay, so there's a court case involving a famous superhero that has relevance, believe it or not, to the leaked Supreme Court interim. We should be clear, interim decision that's been in the news. Uh, on abortion. It is not a case about abortion, but it's relevant nonetheless. In 1990, Stephen Kimball builds a toy that allows children, and I suppose adults, to role play as what he put in the patent application, a spider person by shooting webs. And what he does is he has a canister, small one, a pressurized foam string that just attaches to the wrist, and then then there's this glove, and there's a lever device. I mean, it's pretty bulky, the whole thing, and somewhat silly, uh, but it shoots out foam that could be like kind of like a spider web from the palm of the hand. And he wants to sell this license, Uh, sell a license or just sell the patent altogether. So he meets with the president of Marvel's, of Marvel comic books, of you know, Marvel comic books to discuss the idea. It's a meeting that will land he and Marvel Comics into the Supreme Court because Marvel not too long afterwards says this is a good idea and develops the Web Blaster, which is, you could describe it exactly as what I just had said earlier, except they don't inform nor pay Kimball. They begin marketing the Web Blaster. It's just like his invention. It has a polyester glove, canister, foam. Kids like it. Um, I don't know that parents like it. I think you could ruin the house with it, but maybe that ship has sailed. Kids do seem to like it. Kibble sued Marvel in 1997, alleging that, among other things, the patent was infringed. The parties ultimately settled that litigation. Their agreement provided that Marvel would purchase the patent in exchange for a lump sum. I think he gets about a half million dollars, and he gets a 3% royalty on Marvel's future sales of the Web Blaster and similar products. Now, I know we might have many Marvel Comics fans listening so uh, this is no reflection on the comics, but as business people, I think they make some mistakes because, first of all, he, they're going to market this product without paying the guy, but secondly, in the negotiations and when they write the contract, they don't put any end to the royalty period. No end date. Marvel, I think after a period of time, stumbles across a decision, Berlotte case. And when they're negotiating, neither side is aware of this but Marvel's lawyers are really pleased that they discover this. The Brulot case prevents a patentee from receiving royalties for sales made after his patent's expiration. It's a sunset to the royalty clause. And Marvel's excited because they're like, we don't want to keep paying 3% on this thing. And Marvel says, in effect, argues to the court... You have nothing to sell us anymore, Mr. Kimball, because your rights to this patent have expired. Anyone can come out with such a device, so you're not selling us anything anymore. And they sought a declaratory judgment in federal district court confirming that the company could cease paying royalties. The court approves. Even the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirms it as well. The royalty provision is unenforceable after the expiration of the Kimball patent. The Ninth Circuit and the Court of Appeals makes it clear they're not happy about it. They don't think that this case, Brulot, that it's based on is very good law. But nonetheless, they affirm it. They say there's something about the Brulot rule that is counterintuitive and its rationale is arguably unconvincing. The Supreme Court in 2014 grants certiorari and decides whether or not they should not only you know favor Kimball, but perhaps overrule this Burlote rule. But in a decision authored by Elena Kagan, she says simply, for reasons of stare decisis, we demur. Okay, so this leads to the question, and Michael Legault asks me on the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. By the way, if you're um, not there and you want to follow the program on Facebook, there's actually a page and a group. So the group is the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. It is not only me on there. There are also moderators and lots of people comment and things on there. Uh, and then there is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where you sort of just follow and show your support for the program. Each one of those really helps. You know, if you support us any way you do it. Follow us on Twitter, write an iTunes review on Facebook. All of those things really give credibility to the show. Do you know we were just written up by Time Out Magazine and were put on their list of the top 15 podcasts for understanding politics? That's Time Out Magazine. I mean, Pretty good. Reason magazine f- flagged us recently. Um, no, in a good way, not not the bad way. It's just something that the editor was reading. I don't want to. I don't want to call that an endorsement. Um, so anyway, these are all things that help when they see the fan base. Um, so if you can, you know, follow us, support us, subscribe to us on iTunes, all of that. Back to Michael Lucas' question. It seems with the recent leaked opinion at the Supreme Court that a discussion of Starry Decisis is in order. And right, so the recent case, we know it is a confirmed leak that it was an actual decision of the Supreme Court, a interim decision, I should say, one that we're passing between the judges, written by Samuel Alito. And it's been confirmed to be a real one, not a final one necessarily. In fact, Judge Roberts insists that things are still going on. I want to talk about that. And it basically overturns Roe v. Wade. What it's also... Overturning in that process, if this is correct, and and throwing water on is a concept called stare decisis. In a sense, stand by things decided. It's a concept developed at the common law level. So it's not something that's created recently. It's not even something that was created in the early 1990s, which we're going to talk about just a bit, where it reached the public for, I think it is the principle that courts should follow precedent established by previously decided cases with similar facts and issues to provide certainty and consistency in the administration of justice it binds the supreme court to its own cases in some measure we'll talk about that too it certainly binds you know courts at a lower level to what the supreme court has said There's a lot going on with the abortion issue. It's not a topic that I've covered a lot. It's obviously a very emotional, divisive issue, I want to say at the outset, that I appreciate and understand people with deep-held religious beliefs. This is not, you know, politics is not religion. This is not a program where I'm trying to beat up your religion. To have politics, there must be a free debate. And this is an issue that's so emotional that you have people spending a lot of time in activism, on the street in either side of the issue. You have uh, pretty strong rhetoric like either you're destroying my own body or you're a baby murderer. Either one is canceling the other person from even discussing the issue. So it's a tough issue to take on. I am going to engage in a little bit of historicizing the issue because I think it's warranted as to where it even started as a political issue very briefly, but I'm not going to enter into what's right or wrong. Those are Personal decisions for you. I will just say that there's going to be a lot of shock about anything that changes a law, such as Roe v. Wade. I would imagine that there will be effects because it was not expected. Even though there's been a lot of talk about it, it's not expected that it was actually been overturned. If it does happen, I think you have a different politics from that day forward. It's all, all already starting. So. But what's really going on here? Is it so much overturning Roe v. Wade? I actually think what's actually going on in the decision that was leaked is you're overturning a case called Casey, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And um, so this overturning of Roe v. Wade was almost supposed to happen in 1992, right before the presidential election. Bill Clinton running interesting to go back to that time because it's not as easy as like Bill Clinton's just totally pro-choice it is a um, very different set of of circumstances than that Clinton as governor of Arkansas he had kind of straddled a line you know there's a uh, there's a vote to ban state funding of abortions and Cl- all Clinton really says is we don't need it it's unnecessary rather than directly opposing it he opposed for instance the funding of abortions through state and some medicare funds you know at different times he while maintaining that he was a um, supporter of reproductive rights the politics in arkansas weren't exactly what they were in new york and so clinton even as a democrat was a little bit different we'll get into we'll get into more about that but i just want to historicize this issue a bit where does it come from and this is going to be really brief and really simple and Because we got a lot to talk about, and I don't want to dwell on on abortion this entire episode. But I really think where you see the change, um, if you're going way back into the 19th century, you're seeing laws starting to ban abortion. It is in the 1950s and 1960s when you have a series of things happen. One of them is that doctors in various states start seeing cases of women um, hurt, you know, entering their care hurt by botched abortions. In in Arkansas, for instance, Clinton's own state, abortion is actually legalized before it is in, in officially in New York. Um, Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, passes a um, abortion law, and this is applying to cases of rape or incest before the um, before other states do. It's because of an active uh, promotion of the issue and a more awareness in the press about uh, women dying from botched abortions. The case of Arkansas was a set of doctors that were seeing uh, women using Lysol um, as a a means to abortion and, and ending up seriously in trouble as a result of it. So it's in 1962 when the American Law Institute institutes a model penal code. And they cite three circumstances where they believe a physician could justify an abortion. If there's risk to the mother, physical or mental health. If the child would be born with a grave physical or mental defect. Or if the pregnancy results from rape, incest, or felonious. Colorado in 67's first state. Then you get Arkansas, California, Colorado, Georgia, Maryland, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oregon. Mississippi in 1966 makes abortion legal in cases of rape, and in 72, rape or incest. Alabama and Massachusetts, if the woman's physical health is endangered, also follow suit. So, in a different time in American history, this was a different issue. That's simply the way to say it. Does that make it right or wrong? No, but it historicizes it. The politics are not as clear as they are now, Republican, Democrat, like that. You have Winthrop Rockefeller in Arkansas pushing a more liberalization of abortion. You have Nelson Rockefeller in New York pushing a more liberal law. You have Reagan in California even saying he is uh, mixed about it, but nonetheless signs the bill. You have the Republican Party platform of 1976, very mixed on abortion, while you do start to see the Democrats supporting, have language in their platform about supporting reproductive rights. Even though Reagan and conservatives like Philip Shafley, Jesse Helms are at that convention, RNC 76 in Kansas City, they're pushing Reagan's candidacy and they do not have time or political will to push the abortion issue, even though they might like to, to the platform. So you have a compromised platform even in the Republican Party, 76. And 76 in the Democratic Convention, where Jimmy Carter's nominated, Uh, I talked about that in great detail. The anti-abortion protesters are relegated to this little part of 8th Avenue across from MSG along with communists and other people. I mean, that's where the issue... The woman running against Carter for the nomination gets not more than like a score of votes from delegates. That's where that issue is by the time you're getting to the late 70s. And it's simply a movement that changes it. It's a political organization and movement of um, religious people and others, and they go grassroots. Um, wait, here is 1976 RNC. Because of our concern for family values, we affirm our beliefs stated elsewhere in many elements that will make our country a more hospitable environment for family life. neighborhood schools, educational systems, uh, a welfare policy, a tax system that assists rather than penalizes, creation of jobs, The question of abortion is one of the most difficult and controversial of our time. It is undoubtedly a moral and personal issue, but it also involves complex questions relating to medical science and criminal justice. There are those in our party who favor complete support for the Supreme Court decision which permits abortion on demand. There are others who share sincere convictions that the Supreme Court's decision must be changed by a constitutional amendment prohibiting all abortions. Others have yet to take a position or they have assumed a stance somewhere in between polar positions. We protest the Supreme Court's intrusion into the family structure through this decision. So, the RNC is taking a very middle approach in 1976. By the time you get to 1980, there can be no doubt that the question of abortion, despite the complex nature of its various issues, is ultimately concerned with the equality of rights under the law. While we recognize differing views on the question among Americans in general and in our own party, we affirm our support of a constitutional amendment to restore protection of the right to life for unborn children. We also support the congressional efforts to restrict the use of taxpayer dollars for abortion. States begin to pass laws restricting it. But that's the issue. So you have this issue where, like, Barry Goldwater, one of the most conservative candidates to run in an American election, was a supporter of reproductive rights and wouldn't question it. Um, while he remained a very conservative individual on other issues. So Roe v. Wade comes out. You know, I don't want to get too much into that decision, but it relies on a penumbra of rights that are seen in various parts of the Bill of Rights as creating a shadow of a privacy issue. Why do you have a fourth if you don't? have a privacy right, and that's used to extend to discussions with yourself and your doctor, what you want to do. Griswold v. Connecticut relies on a similar uh, analysis. That's the decision in the 70s. You might think the issue is settled, but since the courts, right, it wasn't necessarily political power in the states that created the uh, abortion liberalization, it was the courts so the decision is made by conservative activists and political forces to change the court. And that's what you're seeing over time. And my, in my view, it was really intended that this would happen in 1992 in in a Pennsylvania case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Well, instead, something else happens. And that's where we get into this discussion of stare decisis. In Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, Souter... Act as a middle three and join to, in effect, save the Roe decision, but to save it because of a concept, not because Roe was necessarily rightly decided, but the case that stare decisis, staying decisions of the court. Having stability in the law means that even if something's badly written, you might keep it. Even bad law that's been around for so long, you might want to keep. They actually set a test. Is a rule unworkable? Would reliance on the rule, this bad law, create hardships? Have changes in legal principles left the rule of relic an outdated doctrine? And whether acts have changed so much that the rule has little practical application? Now, just so it seems all the time like there's like conservatives are against stare decisis and liberals are for it on the court. But that's not really the, the real case. That has more to do with in, in the context of the abortion issue or the Roe issue. Because Scalia has explained stare decisis as, as you know in his past writings as well as anybody. There are certain laws that Scalia writes. They're so woven in the fabric of the law. Like Marbury v. Madison. Uh, Brown v. the Board of Education. The civil rights cases. The slaughterhouse cases, in other words. Holding that the 14th Amendment is only applicable to state action. These are kind of super precedents that have no controversy and they're solidifying their lasting mark. If the court got a whiff that somebody was just suddenly changing something like Marbury Madison, they would use starry decisis, even the most conservative courts. This is Scalia's past arguing in order to, and to protect that. No controversy. Why is starry decisis a concept? There's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that. People have made decisions based on past law, and if you and if you're changing it, that might change a very important life decision. Sandra Day O'Connor brings this up when you're talking about reproductive rights. You're talking about a um, a lot of decisions that are long term, to say the least. Now, also, it just has to do generally with the law because if there isn't something like Starry Decisis, all that's going to happen is you're going to have one court decision and then you just wait a few years later there'll be another one lawyers won't know what to do businesses won't know what to do citizens law enforcement won't really know what to do if they have to keep you know adjusting according to the laws changing i would say the intellectual leader of the conservative side of the court right now alito is definitely a supporter of a qualified starry decisis in fact in the case we just discussed, the Marvel case, here's what Kagan writes, What we decide we can undecide, but Starry Decisis teaches us that we should exercise that authority sparingly, finding many reasons for staying the Starry Decisis course, and no special justification for departing from it, we declined Kimball's invitation to overrule Brulot. And again, Kimball created his spider device. Burloate actually has to do with a um, a machine used for hop crops uh, in farming. And essentially, the court found in Burloate that if we keep allowing someone to get money from a patent, um, that's going to create a monopoly. It's not very and 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 I. You know, and and that is my interpretation of what I'm reading, and I'm not a legal scholar, but that's essentially what I've seen, and you can already see the problem with that. Like, what are you talking about? If the patent's done, and some other company can open up, it uh, uh, starts selling a product that's like a a, a hop crop machine, and you know the court just didn't use pretty good legal reasoning. There's all kinds of contracts that people point out to ways you can arrange licensing after a patent period. You could charge more because the patent period's kind of coming up. There's all kinds of decisions that are, that can be done in a contract. The courts don't need to get involved. But in Brulot, the courts got involved. I think it was a decision that was mostly an antitrust focus. And they were so interested in blocking large trusts that might have rule over farming equipment that they created a general rule that that applied all the way to the 1990s. But what Kagan's saying is, yeah, it's badly decided. Doesn't matter. This isn't Brown v. Board of Ed. We're not, we're using Starry decisis. We're not changing it. Alito disagrees. Alito writes in his dissent, the court employs Starry decisis, normally a tool of restraint, to reaffirm a clear case of judicial overreach. Our decision in Brulot, held that parties cannot enter into a patent licensing agreement that provides for royalty payments to continue after the term of the patent. That decision was not based on anything that can plausibly be regarded as an interpretation of the terms of the Patent Act. It was instead based on an economic theory, one that has been debunked. The decision interferes with the ability of parties to negotiate. And stare decisis, does not require us to retain this baseless and damaging precedent. Starry decisis is important to the rule of law, but so are correct judicial decisions. And, and then later, and this is where it's going to really apply to today, in a legal article, Amy Comey Barrett, who's now Barrett, who's now on the court, refers to it it's not an inexorable command. You don't always have to follow the previous rule. That's one thing. And she refers it to something like a soft a soft rule for the Supreme Court. A rule of policy. That's it. So, um, yeah, what you're seeing there then is that this is playing out. Uh, it's live. You may have a decision reversing Grove. There is one thing that I want to say, and I know this is one of those things that by June I'd probably be proven wrong, but. I just wanted to be sure that I make this point. And that's a useful note of history about that Casey decision. So what happened in Casey is three justices, unbeknownst to the ones writing the majority, had a different opinion and decided to go towards the center, and at least on the basis of stare decisis, hold Row. In Casey, though, the secret Troika only revealed their change of heart on June 3rd. It was a month before the surprising decision, June 29th, 1992. Rehnquist, this is according to Jeffrey Tobin's The Nine, Rehnquist, the chief justice, said, Okay, well, I guess he'll rule against me then. Anthony Scalia was very upset. You know, Roe represented everything Scalia most de- despised and still despises about modern jurisprudence. He saw it as an invented law. Instead of seeing it as um, reading the Constitution interpreting it, it was, now it's invented by a judge. The words aren't there. So anyway... That that led to a definite blow up and rift and uh you know the the descent in Casey, Scalia's descent is pretty um aggressive. And I don't think that uh O'Connor and Scalia were talking very well uh after that. I just wanted to point out though that anyone who would have leaked a memo in February of nineteen ninety two. Uh, or even April of 1992, would have only saw an early part of the process, so that still is a possibility here. However, the court makeup is very different, and I don't see that you have a Souter or a Kennedy type person on that court right now. In 1992, during Casey Clinton, and we don't really know, um, I believe either expected or pined for a row reversal to bring in votes that's more speculation. That's what the way a lot of people were talking at the time. Jim Carville, one of his key advisors, actually doesn't like the issue as much as you might think. He says, I can show you poll after poll that says that people don't need to vote. Don't vote based solely on the abortion issue. But I guarantee you that for every story out of Washington on education funding, there are 20 on abortion funding. Why? Everybody's for education. There's no inherent conflict there. On abortion... You've got interest groups on each side. You've got fire. You've got rhetoric. It's a point of conflict. It's cheeseburgers. It's cheeseburgers for the media, in other words. He preferred to run in the economy, stupid, and that was it. There might have been some feeling in the Clinton camp that when the Casey decision came out, it was probably going to go against Roe, and that would be a big boon to his campaign. Yeah, Clinton doesn't win by a huge amount. He wins; it's a big landslide in the electoral college, but a, but it's a it's it's close enough where there's still a lot of questions. Or without Perot, would he still have won? I tend to think yes, but closer. Um, if that's because the decision, in effect, negated one of the campaign issues, and I, I'm not speculating on whether he wanted that issue or not, you know, or, or more than the court case or not, but certainly was speculated about at the time. It's a big issue at a huge, one of the largest demonstrations ever in Washington, D.C. in 1992, pro-choice rally. So again, um, that's where we are. So stare decisis, um, reading all that I've, you know, looking at it, and um, it's such an important rule. But on the other hand, because it's not um, ironclad, nothing binds the Supreme Court. You know, the old, jo- I forget which justice it is. I'm going to say Byron White, but I could be wrong. He was asked once, what do you need to get a Supreme Court decision? And he held up his hand, five. So nothing is binding with the Supreme Court. They're not, or they're not a legislature, but they're politically appointed. We know that. And you can definitely influence it through a series of appointments. I look at, I mean, there was obviously a concerted effort to change the court during the Trump presidency, just as there was during the Clinton presidency. It just was more successful during the Trump presidency In the Clinton presidency. I think he would have kept, um, appointing more and more if he could have, if he could have gotten additional appointments. Um, Nixon certainly aggressively tried to change the court and succeeded to an extent. Of course, it's the court that Nixon changed that, um, ruled on Roe. So it's, it's a, uh, which to me just reflects that change in the issue. It was not the bread and butter issue of the 60s and 70s. It came out of the late 70s. That's when it first in, in Bill Clinton's governor, and you first seeing the starting to see the protest there. And because decisions that have great tumult, um, issues that have great tumult, issues where there's a lot of action in the legislatures. Um, are the kind of things that I could imagine. I wouldn't personally argue this, but I could imagine an um, argument where there's so much, how can we say this thing settled when, you know, this many states have changed their laws about it? And uh, my argument would be, well, I if I saw 13 states passing laws about Griswold um, v. Con- Connecticut or other rules, I... 13 other states with a very different interpretation of the fourth amendment. You know, I would not, um, that would be pretty weak tea to me to have a a justice of the Supreme court use that to justify overturning. But I think that that's always a possibility. Yeah. I'm not sure who on the court right now would be against that, um, uh, overturning and the statements that they make to while they're getting confirmed. I, it's pretty easy to go around that, you know, If you're defining, as cases in the past have, you're defining stare decisis as not inexorable. That means not impossible to stop or prevent, then that's where it is. Then, when the court leaves the scene having rendered a decision, I believe you shift to the political arena, which is where the people who are arguing for this decision want it to go. And I think you get to uh, I think you get to a change in politics, this of of enormous proportions. Um, and we'll certainly see what happens. You have a midterm coming up, and normally the party in power loses seats. I think it's still going to happen, but I think you've perhaps dulled the knife. Perhaps dulled the knife. Um, you know, you don't have the kind of free shot on goal, inflation, cost of living, complaint, election that you might have had. I'll have another episode on as we get a little closer looking at that. Thanks, Michael. And we got an episode today with a bunch of questions from listeners. It's going to be a huge episode, so keep listening. Buckle in. (laughs) Uh, I want to point out I'm going to be on the Music Rewind podcast in June. Why don't you subscribe to Music Rewind? It's someone talking about an album they like. For me, it's the Bruce Springsteen album, Nebraska, Nebraska that I'll be talking about, but there's a lot of good albums being discussed if you like music. Subscribe to the Music Rewind podcast. Richard Bay, friend of the show, has a podcast now, so I want to plug his podcast and YouTube channel. Go on there if, you, if you've heard him on the show before. He's always been a big supporter of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Dan Byers asks me, thoughts on the U.S. Grant revival movement? I think, for one, it's long overdue. And what he's talking about is that historians are starting to look at Ulysses S. Grant, reconsider his presidency. And I think where this question comes from, Dan, is that if you you went to high school anywhere, at would say the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, even, you know, there's still a lot of in the textbook, the grant presidency being seen as nothing more, you know, grants a buffoon and everybody in his administration was corrupt and everything like that. I am generally for this new U.S. grant revival movement with a but. I'd say really since the late 1990s, you're seeing more and some of the recent books are really highlighting what Grant did to fight the Ku Klux Klan in the South, the initial one, and to defend the rights of recently enfranchised former slaves. And to be sure that uh, they were protected in some cases and rooting out some of the secret organizations that were terrorizing them. In that light... To be clear what some of the historians are saying is that the scandals in the grant administration were overblown that democrats came into congress and started looking under every rug and so the problem is you got this guy oliver babcock who is grant's friend he he's one of his uh, aides during the civil war and he's part of his administration very tight with grant and he with others and conspiracy create this whiskey ring where they're shaking down whiskey distributors um and benefiting from it it's a very large scandal but it's not only what babcock does he also when grant appoints his treasury secretary to investigate this scandal babcock does everything he can to thwart the investigation to gives witnesses pieces of information about the investigation and um, lets them know how things are going and tries to block the Treasury Secretary's efforts. When he's confronted by Grant and the Treasury Secretary, Babcock lies about it, but it's pretty clear that he was involved. And then when Babcock is eventually prosecuted, Grant actually testifies on his behalf. So not that has to go in the record as well. And then Bristow, his... um, uh, Bristow his treasury secretary actually ends up resigning over this. There's also a depression during Grant's term. He's a little cozy with Jay Gould and some of the financiers. There's a bunch of different scandals outside of the Babcock scandal. That's just one that's really close to him. I just think all of that enters the record in equal measure. And as long as you do that, I'm okay with the Grant revival because like a lot of presidents, there were some bad things and there were also many, many good things larry laverin and i'm happy to have him as a uh, listener do you have a few listeners in ukraine larry at least has lived in ukraine i am pleased to see it i still see it pop up as one of the countries larry says hi bruce my wife and i were discussing today the actual rise in support for the ukrainian war in russia and also the increased buy-in of the ludicrous suggestion that ukraine is full of and run by nazis She suggested it was connected to a die-in-vein syndrome, as more than 22,000 young Russians have now come back in body bags. I was wondering if you'd like to comment about that in America's wars, or how far back it might go, or if it had any particular effects on the wars, or any other kinds of observations. It's kind of an obscure particular question, so no worries if you skip it. Cheers, Larry adds... P.S. about Nazis in Ukraine. I lived there for 12 years. And I can say for sure, there's more Nazi sentiment in the U.S., a country which did not suffer through Nazi occupation and offenses. Ukraine probably suffered more during World War II than Russia. Not to mention the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, is Jewish. All of that is true. I mean, the the Nazi thing is a ruse. It's, it's to me, it's a linguistic weapon. You throw a term out, I, I don't... This is half the battle of politics. Uh, these linguistic weapons that appear, you've thrown, you know, what's that thing? Don't think about an elephant, right? Don't think about the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Don't think about an elephant, then that's all you can think about. He says the word Nazi, and then that's all that's on your mind. Well, maybe it's true, you know, and you just start thinking. I think these are just linguistic weapons that get thrown. In political debates, even geopolitical debates, it's so important for fact-checkers and even partisans have a role in the fact-checking process. We aren't just um, submitting to some kind of linguistic attack that has colored our minds. Okay, enough on that. Back to your question, die and Vein Syndrome. What that would mean is soldiers coming back in body bags from a war. And the first thing we might think is that's going to lead to disapproval of the war. And uh, I think your wife is right to question that. What we think is going to be the natural reaction to something isn't often it. And here, I think, um, you know, the numbers vary, 15,000, 22,000, whatever it is. But even Russia's admitting it's a lot of casualties. They lost 15,000 in the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And it completely changed the government of the country. It absolutely did. Gorbachev, one of the ways he made his name was castigating generals because of the failure in Afghanistan and the ability to shun the military a bit led to the civilians to have more power, i.e. Perestroika. So it changed the government completely, but it took time. And that's the key here. Okay. So, die in vain syndrome means you can't stop the war. The public can't stop supporting the war because people have died in it, and in order to honor them, you have to continue the the war. It's a very strong argument. Just a couple of examples. One is the Civil War. What is the Gettysburg Address if not the ultimate die in vain speech? The Union cause was helped by the fact that so many had sacrificed. How can we stop this, right? How can we let the... the, And and that was the argument used against the Copperhead, the Democrats in the North that wanted to end the war. How can you let them, those soldiers, die in vain? Even when McClellan, 1864 Democratic candidate for president, is going to run against Lincoln, he is given a platform, The Chicago platform of 1864, the Democrats put out, looks like surrender to him. And he actually makes a statement. I will not abide by this platform. I'll abide by my own um, feelings. Thank you very much. And that, and again, he makes a died in vain statement that, in other words, those soldiers that served under me, McClellan had been Lincoln's general in the war. um, I'm going to honor their sacrifice by not just giving up to the South. And I think it would have forced McClellan, I mean, that's just a, a, a what if, but it would have forced him to something. I think there would have had to be a little more fighting before there was a negotiation had McClellan won the presidency, and it's because of that died in vain factor. It, it, it goes in a lot of ways. I think that's that, that's a bulwark of Lyndon Johnson's feeling about why he could not abandon the policy. In addition, not wanting to get attacked, it made him look at any movement that was anti-Vietnam with great suspicion. You look at the League of Nations after World War, what we're removed from now, we just look in a textbook and talk about Wilson and his stroke and fighting for the League of Nations. What we're removed from now is the idea that part of that was we need a League of Nations so that those soldiers would have died for something. So it can be positive and negative. It can prolong a war or it can make a cause for the wars it did in, and that cause in World War I or in the Civil War where the cause was um, freedom. So what that leads me to believe, and this is not good for the idea that like popular sentiment in Russia might be going against the war, which I think it is a little bit, particularly in the cities. But there, there's there's A, no media allowed that would be critical, which is going to eventually influence a population, you know, make it difficult to have any other opinion. Not impossible because people read between the lines. Again, I I go back to my upcoming Soviet Union podcast where we're going to find out about how Russians dealt with propaganda media, but also journalists are being jailed for criticizing the government. So it's making it impossible to see anything else and to be reinforced, even if you have an opinion against the war. That that being said, I believe that there are hundreds of thousands, millions perhaps of, of Russians who are against this conflict. It's just that... Open and public support is easier to see. And the, the died in vain makes a, an argument. So, what is it then that ends wars? And I think it's time. That's not good for a conflict like Ukraine when you use that analysis. You know, on one hand, it's really bad for Putin that he lost basically the Soviet Afghanistan amount of casualties in a few months. And that's horrible. On the other hand, when you apply the analysis that you're getting into, it's really sad because what it means is it's often the amount of years of a conflict where this bad stuff is going on and not the simple casualty number. Because the casualty number can be rhetorically spun into a sacrifice for some great purpose if it's believed. So Mark Twain said, suppose one was a member of Congress, and suppose one was an idiot, but I repeat myself. Now I'm reminded of that when I think about Henry Ruddle's question here. I'm also reminded of this fact that there are 435 members of Congress, but we only hear about, right, maybe eight So we're definitely, there's this trend recently that wasn't really present in the past of picking out a few wacky, extreme position members of Congress, and actually they pick themselves to an extent because of social media and their desire to kind of make statements and things, and we're focusing everything on them. But Bruce, in recent years, we've had a proliferation of Republicans elected to Congress who repeatedly say dumb things or spout conspiracy theories. I have a hard time believing this is new or only a Republican thing. So it's time for history to beat up politics by giving examples from both sides of the aisle of stupidity and ness. Is history up to the challenge? This is where I always say this is questions and attempted answers. I'm not going to quite just give examples of stupid things. You know, And what's stupid is going to be in the eye of the beholder. But I know you're saying talking about conspiracy theories, I could take that line a little bit easier. Um, It's almost always present in American history. A lot of politics is, at its basics, a lot of political rhetoric is, conspiracy theories about the other side. We're drawing a cartoon character of our opponents. But in terms of degree, I believe there is, right now, an increased public embrace of those theories. That's why I wanted to cover the anti-Masons in an episode that I did last year. You can go back to that if you haven't listened to it, if you're a new listener to this podcast. We did a whole thing on the anti-Mason. Like, what is this anti-Masonic party that I see in textbooks and maps of past elections? And like a lot of conspiracy theories, there was some little kernel of real behind the anti-Masons. And they exaggerated it by large percentages. The original case was a real documented kidnapping and possibly a real murder. Almost certainly the individual was put into harm by people who were, happened to be members of a Mason club. Does that mean everyone was in harm's way because of Mason clubs all around the country at the time? Likely not. There was also a network of influential people who also were Masons in Masonic clubs, including the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, and others. Powerful congressional member, Henry Clay, and others. Beyond that, they exaggerated 1,000% to turn Jackson's Masonry from a positive asset into a negative, at least in the fertile ground of politics in upstate New York, where they felt if they could turn it, they could turn upstate New York, they could turn the state of New York where the city politics were more democratic. And so the theme of that anti-Mason example is clear. It's not just a group of, say, wackos who didn't like Masons, though those people were present. It was the entire muscle, the anti-Mason movement, of what would become the Whig, anti-slavery, eventually elements of the Republican Party. So you see serious politicians like William Seward and Thurlow Weed who knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew better, but the politics were too great. And Weed starts putting out this anti-Mason political journal, and it just explodes, whereas everything else he wrote wasn't really getting much, much traction. You know, uh, we talked about the wide-awake torch brigades of the Civil War. In some cases, they're just teenagers showing support for the Union, say— um, wearing cloth robes, carrying torch parades, you know. The reason they're wearing these cloths is so that the the uh, oil from the lamps don't spill on them and scald them. But it was unnerving seeing this sight, especially for some of the old political machines who are getting a little bit older in the city, some of the old democratic machines, to see these groups of young people marching through their streets when they were having trouble getting a crowd. And... Um, This, these, where the conspiracy comes in is you have Southerners hearing about these meetings and saying that they're building an army to invade Texas. Oh, the Lincoln-Douglas debate is just one conspiracy trope after another kind of thrown. Um, uh, Here's a, here's one that Douglas kept complaining about that Lincoln kept saying James Buchanan was behind the Dred Scott decision. And Douglas is saying, you know, the history of this country shows that James Buchanan was at that time representing this country at the Court of St. James, Great Britain. And he had not been in the United States for nearly a year previous. And he did not return until about three years after. Mr. Lincoln keeps repeating this charge of conspiracy against Mr. Buchanan when the public records prove it to be untrue. Um... He's also talking about that, that very often Stephen Douglas is attached to this conspiracy of kind of making the Supreme Court rule in the Dred Scott case. We do have a letter from Buchanan to one of the justices, whether that did it or not. I think, like, Roger Tanney was probably going towards a decision the way that he wrote it anyway, without any, you know, uh, presidential-elect interference. Douglas accuses Lincoln of being part of this First Republican state convention held at Springfield, October 1854. And Lincoln says, Douglas insisted that I and Judge Trumbull and perhaps an entire Republican Party were responsible for the doctrines contained in the set of resolutions, which he read. And I understand that it was from that set of resolutions that he deduced the interrogatories, which he propounded to me, using these resolutions as a sort of authority for propounding these questions. And it's about Lincoln's view on slavery. Lincoln's trying through conspiracy theory-like methods to link Douglas to the Dred Scott decision. Douglas is trying to link through some baseless evidence, a little bit of evidence, Lincoln to working with abolitionists, which Lincoln in this time in 1858, he's always maintaining. He's not one of them. However, sometimes Republicans get their votes, that kind of thing. Well, it turns out that there was no convention. There was not in the fall of 1854 any convention holding a session in Springfield calling itself a Republican state convention. Yet it was true that there was a convention, assemblage of a men, calling them a convention and did pass some resolutions. But so little did I really know of any of the proceedings of that convention or what set resolutions they had passed that when Judge Douglas read the resolutions to me, I really did not know that they had been resolutions passed then and there. For I could not bring myself to suppose that Judge Douglas could say what he did upon this subject without knowing it was true. Now there's cheers. Now there's laughter throughout the debates. Lincoln's now going to use this as a counter meme, constantly referring to, um, Douglas's fallacious, um, Springfield convention as just you know you can't necessarily trust anything Douglas says, and and there's other you know. Douglas was constantly trying to say that, like, Lincoln took the Whigs and abolitionized them. His friend Trumbull took the Democrats and abolitionized them and then created this new party, that it was, in effect, a conspiracy. And that's the whole essence of what he keeps repeating over the series of Lincoln-Douglas debates. So, yes, in this event, you had conspiracy theory present. Uh, if we look at Joseph McCarthy, the general tenor of the debates around communism, if we look at uh, Nixon facing Helen Douglas, linking her to a very, really almost pro-communist congressman, Vito Marcantonio, who represented East Harlem in New York, linking her only by some voting records, some, some shared votes, and saying that they were in league and constantly using his name with hers, the pink sheet that he sends out, I mean... So there's a lot of um, you know that early 50s um, GOP attack on the Truman administration, and is rooted in some conspiracy. Now it turns out that someone like a Nixon was right about certain individuals, like say Alger Hiss, but McCarthy and the overall attack was still represented this kind of broader conspiracy attack that was well beyond what was actually going on. Um. This is a quick brush. I mean, you can go to John Birch and go to the LaRoche people. There's always this kind of like conspiracy politics involved, but I think they were relegated to like tables that used to be outside the post office or something, but there always were LaRoche people out there. So what's going on, right? They, who's On the left, I think there's always a lot of this like the corporations are taking over. Much more than that. Big banks, big oil companies, big pharma. Well, don't use drugs, oil, or or credit cards. Then, you know, and they never look at that side. I think I can be critical of the left in that way. You don't look enough at that side. It just looking at the corporate instrument. And yes, the abuses that can happen at very high levels at times without seeing it. But but what else? How else would you structure society? Another leftward example is not to forget, while it never reached the levels of 2020, and that's why it's very different from, say, Stop Steal. There was a decently sized black box voting movement in 2004, most notably a figure named Bev Harris, who found like 40,000 secret voting machine files on the web and talked about it. um, That would have us overruling a 100,000 vote Ohio result and give an electoral college vote to Kerry. In fact, Bev Harris from 2004 black box voting was banned from Democratic underground became kind of thorn in the side on some of the Democratic sites and just an annoying person for some kind of a pre-social media cancel um, was back at it in 2020 giving some credence to 2020 Trump's claims stopped the seal but there's a difference the 20 the 2004 claims led to one procedural objection by one senator in the counting of the votes that was handled in peace and quickly dealt with not. Continued. There was no storming of anything, but it was present. So, you know, we don't, I don't think we go back to that 2004 a lot. Brian Thomas writes Bruce, in the episode I'll Take Prime Ministers and Presidents for 1000, you describe Pierre Trudeau as having had a small ministerial position before he ran for the Liberal Party leadership. He was Justice Minister, which is one of the highest profile positions in the cabinet. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Uh Yeah, I mean, that's correct. Uh, it's correct to say uh, fair criticism. Um, what I should have said is something like a small figure, because it still wasn't really a surprise that he became prime minister. He'd only been elected to parliament in 65, and then he's running. Uh, Pearson, Lester Pearson announces his retirement in 68, and Trudeau runs. It's kind of a joke at first. But the media just picks up on this guy. He just kind of has this style. He's very charming. You know, you have this this Trudemania that goes on. And, and uh, so his position, yes, was justice minister. He'd only served in it for a few years. And um, justice minister is one of the highest positions in the cabinet. And there have been Canadian PMs who have been justice ministers. It was way more common for the equivalent of our Secretary of State, the Secretary of State for External Affairs, to become the prime minister in Canada, at least at that time. Um, but there was at least one uh, justice minister in the 20th century who became Canadian prime minister. Mostly, though, there was secretary of state. And so, yeah, fair criticism. Thanks, Brian. Back to Canada. We got this question on Quora: Would the United States without the South be politically similar to Canada or Europe? And... I'm going to criticize the question a little. It, there's always this dreaminess, uh, this this desire to get rid of our political opponents. Maybe not always violently, but in one way or another. Um, it's simply not going to happen. They're going to be there. And that that's part of my answer to this question. So let's say, you know, so I understand the South makes the country more conservative. There's no doubt the South and previously the West of the West is changing a bit makes the country more conservative. It is interesting when I go back into the books, and I dig in questions, abortion being one of them, where there is a little bit more conservatism in the East during the 19th century, and the West is seen as this area where you can be freer. Politically, right now, I get it. The North is more, uh, we might say, liberal. So what would happen if you just kind of remove, take, say, took all the Southern states, say, all the states of the former Confederacy out, um, I think we get a United States that's closer to Canada. Certainly it doesn't become a Norway. It, it's easy to forget. You have states like New York where you have the city. And I recall talking to folks who were from you know near the Buffalo area and so they get tagged with everything from New York City and they never go there. You know, there's nothing. Um, it's a big state. There's a lot of politics there. And there are a lot of conservatives in that state. I have areas like Staten Island and Long Island that are a little more suburban, conservative-ish. Uh, New Jersey, where I'm from, the area around the shore, the southern part of it, and then the southern part of the state. And the northwestern part of the state just tends to be more conservative areas. Pennsylvania, you mean we see it, western Pennsylvania. So, yeah, to think like everything's just going to be. And I also think there's like a, a weird effect that would happen. New conservatives would be developed by the excesses of policies. That's the way politics works. That's my prediction. If you removed certain like ultra conservative states from the union or what have you, Um, But you probably have, like, a Canada situation where the Conservatives can do very well. We have places like Alberta that are stronghold. You would still have a Republican Party. What you would have is you wouldn't have, like, crazy 2022 Giuliani's. You would have 1994 Giuliani's, more Rockefeller-type Republicans running against more liberal Democrats. Mike Yakim writes, pointing out an error that I made uh, during the podcast about Kurt Schmoke. Always happy to hear that. I am not infallible by any means, guys. I have to tell you about some mistakes, some major, on your 9th January podcast, R.E. Kurt Schmoke. While its true industry was on the downturn in Baltimore in the late 80s, early 90s, the Bethlehem Steel Plant was not closed. It was still working three shifts. It would later close in 2004. My dad was a supervisor, and the General Motors Brewing Highway plant closed in 2005. I was there for that. It's now an Amazon facility. The steady decline of manufacturing decimated the city, and as you point out, it is a city of negative population growth. People like myself, Mike says, who could take transfers to different states, jumped on it. I enjoy listening to your show while building Chevrolet Traverses and Buick Enclaves in Lansing, Michigan. Chasing the GM dream of retirement has taken me to three states and four plants. The only reason I go back to Baltimore is to see my parents and eat the seafood. Thanks, Mike. I'm always glad to hear corrections. I by no means consider me infallible, nor my history can beat up your politics. The end of all knowledge. But hopefully people are launching off from this launching. I get inspired from this launching off point and read other things and, and investigate more. Because this is one where research was conducted in 2017, it had been something that was limited to premium subscribers, and then I put it on the main feed, brought it out this year. Um, I'm not sure of the source of all of my contentions that these plants were closed. I know there were a series of articles about Kurt Schmoke, the mayor of Baltimore, facing a declining city where he's talking about plants being closed. In the case of Bethlehem Steel, I did see that I just simply read an article too quickly where Schmoke had actually just said... That in 1967, the largest employer was a steel company, Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point. And you could drop out of school and make a good living. Today, the biggest employers are Johns Hopkins University and Health System. So um, that was at least the reason for for that one. So sorry about that. I'm better at it than I, than I used to be, even in 2017, or just check things a little more i like mistakes if I'm going to make them where the overall theme is true. I mean, this man was facing as mayor a city on the decline, but it does happen that that plant was open. Thanks for listening. I'm glad to hear we can provide some entertainment while um, making cars that we all drive. Let's see. Dave writes in the podcast about Taft and the Man elkins Act. Was that railroad bill in response to the standard oil manipulations or was that a different era? Remember, it was the episode about Millions Fall. The first part of it was about the trees in the Civil War, but we also talked about Taft and that Taft wasn't just a buffoon. He actually did something in his presidency and passed a couple of laws and Man Elkins is a very important one that extends to TV and even and the Taft family got into TV, not him, but his his relatives. And uh, were involved all the way into iHeartRadio, into podcasting. So, in any case, Dave's question is, no, so that was, did he pass the loan reaction to Rockefeller? Yeah, I mean, Rockefeller was one of them. Rockefeller and favored clients of the railroads that were getting better rates and forcing the railroad to charge their customers for total violation of today's rules. But legal then, though condemned, it was Rockefeller was also Carnegie Steel was a big one that the railroads would favor, and then if another steel company tried to use the railroad for shipping, they would be forced to pay high rates. So, man, Elkins ended that. Brian Fredericks writes, I'm a big fan, and I have been listening since 2010. You played one or two Charlie Parker songs in your newest episode, pre-war 1941, and I loved them so much I was wondering, what are the names of those songs? Um, thanks Brian they're not Charlie Parker So what I just wanted to do is give people a little flavor of what Charlie Parker might be like I don't play copyrighted music I only play music from the free uh, music archive and that was a uh, couple of um, bands were used there one is called Jazz at Mladost Club M-L-A-D-O-S-T Club and it was their song Karina Blues they are from Serbia a jazz band from Serbia Another one is a band called Blue Dot Sessions and their song Dangerous Swing. And still another is Lache Swing doing Sweet Georgia Brown, which I have in the background. Um, I had another shout out to Matt Schneider, a friend of mine and also a listener who was asking me, like, oh, is that Sidney Bechet instead of Charlie Parker? I was like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't any of them. I only play music from the Free freemusicarchive.org. Uh, it's actually a great place if you want music for podcasts and things. And you're really, you know, all you have to do is uh, give attribution, which I usually do in the show notes. I think I missed it in that one. A lot of the music that you hear in my history can beat up your politics. If I'm playing music, it's usually Lee Rosevere. He's most of it. And um uh, mentioning him all the time. And, you know, I also uh, help support him. And I try to limit music. I know it's... Uh, People don't like too much of it. I get it. I just trying to, it's a great segue. It's harder to do segues without it. It changes mood. It changes the, okay, it's a new subject. Why did John Kerry and the Democrats lose the 2004 presidential election? Um, Just not enough there is my answer. Not enough in that people hadn't turned against Bush enough. It was a national emergency after nine eleven, and that really extends into the 2004 election. You're only getting in the middle of the summer of 2004 where people are starting to majority saying this Iraq war is a mistake. That's a hard ground to run on. Um, the economy had improved from the post-9-11 and dot-com bubble slowdowns, you know, One of the strongest opposition campaigns to a sitting president, just not enough. Kerry as a candidate, kind of like, eh, something missing, you know? Very strong candidate in some ways, very presidential-looking senator and person. Bush, on the other hand, isn't a strong candidate either, so it's kind of this mixed election, and he came awfully close. And what if I was, you know, if you were in the Democratic Party at that time, I think you really oddly enough, wanted to go for popular vote loss and electoral win. That's just to simply win Ohio. I would have chose Gephardt. Um, and uh, that, I think, was a mistake. Or someone from Ohio. I don't know who. Because that was what the whole battle was about. And if you could eke out a mere 100,000 votes there, you could have won. That's what the election turned on. Um am going say one more thing about Kerry and that campaign. The war was rapidly turning into what many would term an occupation and we're losing soldiers. It wasn't going as well. The people weren't receiving us in Iraq as George W. Bush had planned. There was a lot to attack there. The Boston convention was kind of like a, where Kerry ran on his war record, no retreat, no surrender type stuff. And I think there, something was missing because Kerry had been a war protester, but you hadn't heard enough about it. In other words... What he should have said, and here I'm putting like consultant hat on, is I was somebody who fought in the war, but then I turned against it. And the same thing with this Iraq war. But instead, it was more of like, we're going to go in there and we're going to win it. I'm going to win it. I'm going to do a better job. And that's tough message against an incumbent president. That's why I think it just wasn't, it didn't jive. And it opened him up to the swift boat attack because... He had had this past of protesting. That's what he was really known for. Yes, he had been a veteran. He obviously served, and that's important, but he had also protested. And there wasn't enough of that in the initial launch of the campaign. It was easy to show if you're going to run as a veteran, we're going to get, you know, and some of it's fake news people who never even served with him. They might have served in Vietnam or on a PT boat, but not with him. And they're saying he's, you know, terrible and all of this stuff. Kerry was a person who testified before Congress against the war, and it was a very – Nixon actually thought he did a good job of all people. It was very convincing, and they had to counter it. He was a very well-known and powerful spokesperson at that time, and also he you know, threw his medals away. I mean, I think you had to embrace that more than he did, is my point. It would have been a more uh, vigorous campaign. That's part of it. It was a, a squeaker. A squeaker. The other thing, so there's another fact. So that's all from the Kerry side. That's like all from the Democratic side. Let's look at it from George W. Bush's side. Here's the other thing. Rove, Bush, Melham, running the GOP at the time, took Ohio seriously. And so did the Democrats, but they took it really seriously. And they built organizations of people in counties where they just weren't getting the kind of voter turnout that you normally would get. You know, because in in these elections, some of these counties always go Republican and voters maybe were lazy about turnout, where in the cities, you know, machines were kind of getting a lot of people out to the polls. They adopted that machine mentality in the suburbs and the exurbs and built organizations that would sustain voting. I'm going to plan a whole podcast about this in the future. They set up a whole system almost comparable to an Amway type system, and Democrats didn't even know what they were hit by on election day when the kind of GOP turnout. So the Democrats do this really super job at turnout and bring in all these organizations and think that they're going door to door and doing a great job. And they're just shocked by what we didn't expect in this County. There'd be that many like older Republicans voting. So there's this whole organization. Now there's a whole story with that. and, And I think I have a podcast coming where I break into that a little bit, but Some of the people that ran that campaign in Ohio were were anti-Trumpers by the time you get to 2016. But nonetheless, that infrastructure was built up. Real close election, though. And in a close election, everything counts. Any one factor could have. Maybe if, um, you know, so he picks um, Gephardt. He just does better in the debates, say, with Dick Cheney than Edwards did. In that close election, Couple Half a point in the polls or something, it counts. That was a squeaker. Uh, Let's see. Derek writes me, and he's a new listener. As a first taste of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, I just listened to your episode, Third Parties, The Moped and the Maserati, dated March 20th, 2019 in the feed, but actually from 2012. I was surprised and disappointed there was no uh, mention of the main impediment to third-party success, the the first-past-the-post FPP electoral system in the U.S. and some other large Anglo nations like Canada and the U.K. In most other democracies, some form of proportional representation is used to avoid the common problem in FPP systems of a small majority of the popular vote giving a huge majority in legislature to the winning party, disproportionate to the popular vote. PR takes many forms and it isn't perfect, but it's better than FPP. And certainly, it's the main reason third parties face such huge, chronic obstacles to success in FPP countries. Thus, my surprise, there was no mention of PR, any type of electoral reform in your episode on third parties. Now, as a listener and given your huge backload, it's very possible you talked about it somewhere else. Okay. Um, oh, and he also says, Derek, he's very adamant about this PR system. And I want to convey that. He says, if not, it's a topic well worth covering, if only to let Americans know that their electoral system is globally atypical, antiquated, and permanently stuck in a two-party quagmire. Okay, so it is an episode from 2012. It is available in the feed. It's, I, I kind of like that one. Third party is the moped and the Maserati. We talk a lot about John Anderson's 1980 third-party campaign, and that's the reason for the title, because his Campaign manager David Garth was like, you know, we were a moped running against a Maserati and we're trying to run a third party campaign in America. So the reasons I say that third parties didn't win in that episode that he alludes to are funding, budgets, um, the fact that there's no established party in each state if you're running as an independent. You don't have that down ticket supporting you in all cases unless you're really good at organization. Um, but also because people don't like to waste their vote. That was a big one in 1980. You know, John Anderson would get like 21% in polls, but then the actual vote six. And then if people asked if you thought there was a chance of winning, more people would even, uh, say that they'd vote for him. So there's this factor of the people want to be effective in picking the president, not wasting their vote. And there were a couple other factors. I mean, one reason that people don't think about is I know we bash and smash the RNC and the DNC, but right now as I'm talking to you, most of you like the sound of one of those or the other. And and I know there's a group that doesn't. I know there's a group that's going to say, you know, I hate all the parties. I hate the DNC and the uh, RNC. But there's a pretty decent group, maybe even a majority, that's going to say, "I like Democrats. I like when I hear the word Republican. I like that." So that's a factor too. You know, it's not like these are horribly unpopular institutions. Um, that's just presented that way with some kind of independent, maybe libertarian or um, very left wing or very right wing viewpoint that then doesn't like the parties. That's not the majority of people. Most people do pick one in America. So there's a lot of reasons. Those are the reasons I gave. He's adding, you don't have, you have in America first past the post system. Simply said, the one with the most votes wins. So if you get 31%, you know, the other guy gets 20 and the other one gets 22, you win with 31% of people supporting you, you know. Where this happened almost was actually when we had a third party run and you had Perot running and you had um, 1996, you know, Bill Clinton almost winning Wyoming. They were thinking of going to vacation there because they could pick up that state, which would never vote for a Democrat. But with a third party split, it might. Um, I have another question I just had answered about Woodrow Wilson and he benefited from first past the post in a big way. With proportional, it might very well. I'd have to do the data on that, and I haven't. But I can at least say that Roosevelt would have had a much better chance of becoming president under a proportional system where you said, in effect, um, we allocate electors by the percentage of the vote that you got. Okay. Um, Derek, it, it appears, feels very strongly about it. I will just say... That a couple of things for Americans, unless they're really politically involved, FPP or First Pest to the Post, they don't know it. It's not as much of a debate here. That's probably why it didn't make it into the episode. There's some other reasons. I mean, I tend not to, it, it depends. I mean, unless I'm going to structure an episode that way, I'm talking about the reasons in the system that we have a third party's not elected. I'm not just going to think about any system that we could create and we don't have it. Um, So that was probably what informed that. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well,
0: I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more – And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I also want to say it's, it doesn't even get the discussion that you might get in the UK. In the UK, you have the Liberal Democrat Party, which routinely – gets a good percentage of the vote and very few seats in parliament. You know, there was a classic election in the 1970s. I'm going to say 74 and hope that I'm not wrong. In the 74 um, early election, the liberal Democrats get a huge amount of votes, but end up with like eight seats. And they did television advertising, they did everything because just because of the gerrymandering and first past the post system in and, and, and there was just a few seats that they could win. Um in other cases liberal democrats have gotten you know over 50 in the 2010 election and became a governing partner, but that's rare. So they do just because of that party and other parties there's a lot of discussion of um getting proportional representation instead of first past the post in the UK. But that discussion hasn't translated to much real action on it. Um, they don't seem to be changing anytime soon. Here, it's more at a local level. You might see some of this. You also see some ranked preference voting. That just happened in New York City at the mayor election. I do think at least that first result of ranked, you know, didn't turn out much different than what most of the polls said would be for first past the post. But hey, that and and, and again, that's ranked. That's a little different. OK, so here's uh, there are a couple issues with um, proportional representation here that I believe would um, send it to, um, it would have to be a constitutional amendment to really make it work. Um, This electoral mechanism would hurt the case. Elections where there's no 270 electoral votes for one candidate go to the house and thus you have the chance of better voting, but perhaps less chance of actually picking the president with the system. So if we're going to allocate electors by the percentage of votes and not say winner takes all in a state, um, if we're going to do it by say uh, you'd have to do it by, well, we'll get into that. Um, If it goes to the house, you've now turned what you wanted to make more democratic To something less democratic. And here's another mechanism. The Constitution also calls that each state gets its um, congressional representation in electoral votes. Now, that means, um, you know, it's still not perfect. That still limits the amount of winners they can be in a state. They can be in a state. Most likely, you no, know, yeah, so it still limits the amount. It's not going to be a perfect science there. But I, I do understand the point. Smaller parties could be better represented under the system. I just think a lot of the elections are going to end up going to the House the more popular these third parties get. And there you're going to have to hope that your third party has representation in these delegations. So you're going to probably need to make it work really a constitutional amendment, which in American history is difficult. Last one's 92, and it wasn't even a real serious issue. So the last serious one was 72. It's a long time ago. Um, that being said, I've now talked a bit on an episode about proportional representation. I a funny thing, you asked if I had talked about it a previous episode. I don't really know anymore. It's 400, and many of them are An hour or two hours, I I really don't know. Uh, I don't have a great index of all the episodes or know what I've talked about. It feels like I have talked about um, voting in the past. Anyway, thanks for writing, and that's what I think about it right now. I I think there's one more thing to say. What proportional representation can produce is kind of a coalition government. Now, it wouldn't because our Constitution calls for one person to be elected president. But one assumes that if in order to get those electors of the different parties let's say you know georgia has a couple green voters right and there's a couple libertarians in new hampshire and in order for the republican to win they have to get those votes obviously you can see where deals are going to have to be made promises extracted and you know it's not a bad point you might get more of what you want when you vote you pull that green lever say But I also think it's filtered in those coalition governments through that coalition negotiating, which is also an undemocratic process. It's not transparent. You don't know what's being given away and what's being agreed to. And and again, your vote's getting filtered a lot. If it's like, well, the Republican needed the green, how's that going to work? You know, at best you might get a, a, well, we'll do a referendum on the environment. I mean, that's what happened to the Lib Dems. In the UK, when they got into coalition, like, well, we'll do a referendum on your issue, but we're not going to actually change uh, the the first-past-the-post system. So um, these are all thoughts to think about. Thanks for bringing it up to me. Al Mendelssohn asks me three questions. With what president would you most like to have a dinner, take a cross-country bus trip for 40 hours, and be ruled by So that's three different questions. Have dinner, take a cross-country bus trip, about 40 hours, and be ruled by. Um, You know I'm going to get Chester Arthur in here. You just know it. So let's see. The first is to have dinner. Gotta have dinner with Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was known for having these great dinners at the White House. And they weren't as formal as, say, dinners that... uh, In their own way, they were pretty lavish. There was a lot of wine expended and he would um, do things to introduce conversation to the table and stuff like that. I'll I'll give you a little passage. Cross-country bus trip. So I have to say Chester Arthur, because so much of his own files are missing. I believe that his family might have gotten rid of it. It was just a common thing to do in those days. There isn't enough about him. Plus, it's he's a unique president that not a lot of people focus on. He never should have been president by the normal methods. He was a guy that was the collector of the port in New York, like the key boss of the Republican Party, and also the fundraiser and and the uh, money maker. Because we don't know much about him, we might think he's like a bore or something. But this is a guy that was a politician in New York, was running the Republican Party, and and really had to charm people and converse with people. Whereas, you know, because my first answer, Al, was going to be Bill Clinton, all right? Wouldn't we want to sit there and I'm sure he'd, he'd talk for the 40 hours, right? <laughs> but what are you actually going to learn that you don't know already or that you might suspect he's he's just giving you like a good version of the story or something like that? You couldn't just read a book like My Life. No, go with Chet Arthur. Be ruled by. Well, first of all, I'm going to qualify it And it's important for the answer. I don't agree with be ruled by. We're not ruled by presidents. Okay, but nonetheless, Bruce, answer the question, right? Because there's obviously a lot of things they are going to, in effect, rule over you on. I thought about this a lot when um, Kevin Willis asked me this question about, like, kind of favorite president. And I thought, you know, I answered it too quickly uh, because I really think this is it. And if I'm allowed to say a particular time, because the answer would be different in a different term of that president. And I'm going to say Reagan's second term. Um, Why? Well, in the first term, I would have disagreed with him on a lot of things. And also, I feel that that was the height of his rhetoric, you know, trying to run the government with rhetoric and not reality. And by the time you get to a second term, believe he took a lot of punches. I believe he took a lot of, um, he understood things well. He was still a very good speaker on TV and could still sway a lot of congressional votes. But he wasn't as um, solidly one ideological issue. And you see that in tax reform and you see that in the reaching out to Gorbachev And, and in many cases, Taking on conservatives in this party, you see that even at the tail end, when um, they want to go into Panama and take Noriega out, and he just does not want a ground war with U.S. troops. No, no. Someone might ask me, but well, Bruce, that's it. There's all these issues where you might disagree with Rick. Yeah, I think you you were asking me who do you want to be ruled by. And I think there's a lot of components to a presidency because yeah, it would be great to say I just want somebody who agrees with me all the time. But if they have no power, or if they don't control their Congress at all, you're not really being ruled by them. They're a weak president. They're not helping you that much anyway, except maybe the veto. But if you look at him, in that second term, he still had the ability to sway. Boy, he, Republicans did not want to pass that tax reform. He got it passed. Don't think the relationship with Gorbachev would have been as possible um, with a Democrat in that White House. So you had somebody who... Um, and, and I'll be honest, I'm um, a lot of issues coming from a more liberal, at least center left side of things. You're going to say, Bruce, that's crazy to pick, you know, um, someone like that to be ruled by. But you have to understand that then you have this person who, if he's on your side, he's got the ability to actually get something done versus a president just going to sit there and be a partisan and, and, you know, I'd best just protect it and, and veto things. And I think he was also moving center on a lot of things and reversing some. Okay, so Tom Morris on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site writes Bruce, what is your favorite historical novel? Now, a uh, good question. I don't read a lot of historical novels, I don't read a lot of historic. Fiction. I don't even like a lot of TV shows or movies because, um, particularly TV shows, because I just get frustrated if there's mistakes. You know, everything we do here is trying to find out the facts of history. That being said, I've read many of the Gore Vidal novels. Washington D.C. by Gore Vidal is is, is a good one because. He tells the story from the point of view of a Southern senator who is a Democrat during the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, who is also a Democrat, but you get to see how this Southern character, this Southern senator, absolutely despises uh, Roosevelt and you know, but but yet they're kind of locked together on certain things, and he's limited to what public statements he can make because uh, he's also a Democrat and erstwhile supporter of the New Deal while trying to limit it. Why did Charles Evans Hughes resign his seat on the Supreme Court to run against Woodrow Wilson, given that this meant Wilson would appoint his replacement? Given the contemporary climate, Would any justice consider doing that today? I think that the court was always contentious. So so it would be wrong to say, wow, you don't have the atmosphere in in 1916 that you had in 2022 because it's not exactly true. It was, you know, Republicans did not want Woodrow Wilson to get an appointment any more than uh, Republicans would uh, Biden today, right? I mean, that's going to change a whole host of particularly labor legislation, that they weren't. But Hughes had been a governor and a politician and a popular one before his service on the court. So he came not just from a judicial background, but from a political one. And Republicans had won every presidential election since 1860. So for 52 years at that time, save three elections. So it's 1916. Republicans have won 13 elections to three. Wilson isn't that super popular. The GOP nominee would normally just win the election by force of party. Even James Blaine in 1884, which would have been in the mind of people, wasn't that far away, was a horrible nominee. Everyone hated him, even in the GOP party. He almost won. He wanted to be president. That's why. I think he thought he could get it. He wouldn't have done it for a lost cause. He was pressured, too. And... He waited for the nomination in June, and GOP conventions were early those days to accept, and then he resigned. So he held out till he got the nomination. Today, you don't hear too much about Supreme Court justices running. Hughes was the last candidate to come from the Supreme Court. But Owen Roberts had flirted with a race in 1936, and William O. Douglas was at least under consideration for the VP slot. At least uh, FDR mentioned him. What podcasts are you listening to right now? And I say, okay, I'm going to answer currently because I, I'm i like anybody else listening to podcasts. I'll rotate, I'll unsubscribe from podcasts and then come back and listen to them again. Entitled Opinions, great podcast coming out of Stanford University. You have to be into like philosophy and, and kind of some heavy subjects, but I, I always find it to be illuminating and great. Infamous America, that's one of the programs on the uh, – airwave media network and they go through he just did one of the north hollywood uh, bank robberies and it just tells the story of crimes being committed and criminals also being caught or never found or things like that uh he does a great job with that infamous america in uh lately for some british news and just to get a take on world news cross questions with ian dale for a british uh, program cautionary tales also another british program but he gets into how human error leads to big problems pretty interesting stuff Um, american epistles i can't recommend this history podcast enough so what she does on american epistles is read letters from real people in history and you get the sense of a story. So, talking about, for instance, recently she's doing Chinese immigration to San Francisco in California, and the experience of people, women in particular, reading their real letters of what they're really saying. Of uh, course, my friends wrote to Now and Ohio versus the World, History Unplugged, all great ones.
0: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: David Kerwin writes about the Ukraine podcast that we did with Ben Sawyer. I enjoyed the podcast, but was disappointed to hear you discuss Kemelnitsky without mentioning anything about his responsibility for the massacre of tens of thousands of Jews. This was considered the greatest tragedy for Jews in Europe before the Holocaust. David, it's a fair criticism. I did know about it prior to recording that podcast, and it simply came down to, I mean, we still have time limits on, to some extent on podcasts, and especially with a guest where we were going to talk about some other things, um, it would have been such a divergence. The main point of even talking about uh, Kamel Nitsky is not just to say, oh, he's great which he may have some reattention given the conflict with Russian really present him more as historiography, how a nation might attach itself to a, to a hero from an old time um, than just a plain old hero. I also wanted to get right to Ben quicker and not talk about, not do my stint too long in there, but there's, there is um, absolutely. Kamiletsky, And the the Polish-Lithuanian kingdom was protecting the Jews in Ukraine. And unfortunately, Kamilnetsky and his warrior kingdom were targeted Jewish people. And that led to a massacre. It's not a hero of history necessarily, but a way that some Ukrainians identified themselves as that Cossack mentality. On the West Wing TV show, Aaron Sorkin, West Wing, who was Toby's source for the illegal leak to the press about a military space shuttle? Okay. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody's watched the TV show, but I think we have a good intersection of people who would listen to my history, community, politics, and and watch the West Wing. So I'll bite. Uh, I answered this on Quora. Because they never reveal who leaked the uh, to the press about the military space shuttle. Well, they do. They do. They never reveal who Toby got the information from. And partially, the actor Richard Schiff really didn't, Richard Schiff really didn't like the storyline. So he's not a great source for everything because he doesn't think it was well written at all. And it is a little patchy. I mean, it's not great writing in, um, in the seventh season of The West Wing. There's some really good moments and the actors are great. But some of the writing could be better and it could be established more. I just suspect it was no one. And it's never answered on the TV show. Toby's extremely smart. If you uh, look at the episode season two, seven, um, season two called, uh, 17 people, which I think is, uh, it's actually episode 16 of season two, but it's called 17 people. You see how quickly Toby figures out that the president's hiding something possibly, you know. That he doesn't want to run again for president. He's smart. Real smart guy. In season five, he saved Social Security. He didn't need a source telling him absolutely that there was a military space shuttle. He read the clues, and he probably read the same budget that C.J. Craig ran when she also surmised that there was a shuttle. If C.J. could pretty much do it, entering a meeting knowing full well that the Defense Secretary and National Security Advisor already knew there was a space bummer, right? A a shuttle that you send up to fix satellites, perhaps. Toby could could certainly infer it. And then he was enough of a source, being Toby Ziegler, to have the newspaper printed. C.J. Alba confirmed its existence anyway when he questioned Toby as to whether his brother, the astronaut, ever revealed the existence of a second shuttle. What Toby discussed with his deceased brothers off camera. But I'd wager a guess that it wasn't cold confirmation. In season seven, he does say, Toby, that it wasn't his brother that he could have been covering. It was as if he said, it was, as he said, not a felonious breach of national security. The disaster not brother either wouldn't have committed or Toby wouldn't have allowed his memory to be seen as him committing. I think that while neither CJ nor Toby's brother confirmed the existence of the military shuttle, both gave enough hints. And then Toby came up with it and it was enough of the source for the reporter. But because, you know, there wasn't the greatest writing after Sorkin on that show, although the episodes are still great, uh, it was never quite revealed. That's what I think. What factor helped Woodrow Wilson in the election of 1912? It's the Republican split between Taft and Roosevelt. That's why Woodrow Wilson wins the general election. Absolutely no doubt about that. He does not win a straight-up election Without the intra party Republican fight. Um, now, that makes it seem like Wilson's just a fluke. And in some ways, that's certainly the way the politics were spun in those days. Um, that conflict was inevitable. There was no way that Big Ten could stretch so much to keep both sides in. It was just two different ideas of America moving forward. And so you have the fight between Taft. And Roosevelt. But because that fight's ongoing, and Roosevelt is a strong candidate, very popular, and Taft is the incumbent president, both very strong things. If you add the Roosevelt and Taft votes, Wilson would have lost New York 58 to 44 percent instead of winning at 41 to 29 percent. Illinois, Wilson would have lost 56 to 35 percent. He would have lost the election. Why is Bill Clinton generally admired by Americans when he was impeached and formally charged with lying under oath and obstructing justice? And uh, I don't know if the person asked this question maybe weren't around for the events because it was pretty, I don't know, a pretty common opinion at the time. But I'll answer in the traditional fashion that I think most people would answer if they're not a severe partisan one way or the other and then add something to it that I don't think people think about. So the first thing is that the impeachment was more unpopular than Bill Clinton was, deemed by most Americans at the time as unnecessary. The perjury was put into a context about what he was lying about, and it was seen uh, to be about sex rather than an, an embarrassment and just didn't seem to be impeachable, even if even in the books, it's a crime. Um but I'll add this note that I think other people don't think about quite. Bill Clinton was a rare president of American politics. Since public opinion was measured, he started very low in approval ratings and then grew over time. They didn't have a great opinion on him in the beginning, and he kind of gained more of that opinion by the second term, really by the end of the first term, In after people got a taste of the government shutdown, a taste of... Uh, republican congress and what they were offering he improved by contrast that's not the way it works with most presidencies it's not the way it worked for instance it's not the way it's going with biden not the way it went with obama most presidents start with goodwill and they move down just a simple pattern of presidents over time no zealot like a convert i think so having already came back in the estimation of a lot of Americans, they've been through lows with Clinton already, kind of knew who he was, didn't care to put him down again. Hence, in my opinion, just a huge increase in approval after impeachment. I also think there was more activation of partisans that um, at the time, Gingrich as a figure was polarizing the majority of uh, Americans did not want impeachment, not only in polls. But also in a midterm election in 1998, Republicans went through with the impeachment in any case. Um, Senate disagreed, got a mere 45 votes where 67 was needed. Um, Now, when the founders, framers, whatever you want to call them, decided on impeachment, they made sure it was separate from crimes. That works both ways. A president can be impeached for a high offense related to the power that there may not be a crime on the books. And if the last impeachment is any indication, it's possible they can even be impeached when they are not president anymore. I still don't know. That hasn't gone to the courts. So the crime of perjury did not constitute removal in the view of the political people who had those votes, the Senate at the time, the many a senator voting for Clinton, criticized their behavior while they were voting. Here's an example. Bob Kerry, a Democrat, far from buddy-buddy with Clinton, uh, was an example. He says, as he's voting to acquit Clinton, Nebraskans, including me, are angry about the president's behavior. We find it deplorable. But impeachment is not about punishing an individual. It's about protecting the country. We punish a president who behaves immorally, lies, and otherwise lacks the character we demand in public office with our votes. Presidents are also subject to criminal prosecution when they leave office. Uh, Bill Clinton did lose the ability to practice law in Arkansas where he's licensed. And in the view of uh, many, that was appropriate punishment. Uh, You even have Gingrich years later saying, Americans got it right. Gingrich claims, at least, that people supported the House impeachment, but not convention, which I don't think there was support for either in the public sense. Bill Clinton's image has changed over time, by the way. And, you know, I mean, I think um, the Obama years created another Democratic ex-president that shares the stage with him. And I think has, um, even if they appear at rallies and stuff together, I think that uh, diminishes his... Uh, elder statesman status a bit um, because he was you know clinton had many flaws um henry Ruddle asks me how about this old chestnut how does the u.s compare with ancient rome are we getting ready for an augustus to end our republic henry you know I'll let you know when the end of the Republic is coming, and I don't think it's yet. I know what people think. I know some of the things that are going on. I really don't think we're there. I'm going to be doing a series on the Soviet Union coming up, and it actually is unrelated to the invasion of Ukraine. I decided to do it last year. It's actually something that I've had cooking for a very long time in notebooks and legal pads, and I'm really just finishing it up this year when you have something like the soviet union and the level of secret police and kgb and infiltration uh in every aspect of society um a kgb department assigned specifically to the clergy to harass intimidate to to infiltrate to pick leaders um assigned to factories listening on telephone calls i mean That's the end of the republic. When you cannot exercise free speech, that's when you know it's happening. Now, there are some danger signs in our society right now. Um, And I know a lot of people are going to go immediately to like cancel culture or something, but I see an equal to that if that's taken to an extreme. Right now, I think in a lot of cases, the victims, in quotes, of the cancel culture have more, um, are, are, doing quite well in their careers in, in because America offers such a variety of media platforms, including the one that I'm talking to you on, which many have, have found. So that I think some of that's overblown. But there's another factor, too, which is like the doxing and the um, just kind of shouting down or people just being intimidated to speak. Um because of the social media platforms and the personalization and or being worried about attacked for their speech and the like. So should have the right to associate, to speak, to be able to protest in a group. I am divided and I let the courts decide whether it's where those boundaries are. I'm going to have Lynn Greenkey on soon, who's going to talk about a lot of this stuff. But, you know, whether it's the sidewalks or whether you can protest at night or things like that. But just, you know, people feeling violence, um, possibility of violence if they go to a protest or go to associate or redress their government. Um, But, you know, when you hear that Soviet Union cast, I think it'll give you a vision. Uh, And the reason I'm doing the Soviet Union cast is not just to look at some abstract alien place of the past, but to look at us. And, um, you know, it's kind of like if you see those signs, then you know you're there. You know, Um, another technique I have is look at everything that Alexis de Tocqueville said was great about American democracy. And as you see any of those pillars going, then you know when that end is happening. Tocqueville provides a good example of what should be happening. Things like free um, things we don't think about all the time. We think about journalism and a free press. Press that can't be destroyed because they publish a single article, you know, bankrupted, you know, where we need like Times v. Sullivan, very strong, um, but also things like just having associations, groups, uh, and we hate lobbyists, right? But it's actually part of democracy. Very important uh, education, people knowing what they're talking about when they speak of politics, very important Um And, you know, Tocqueville shouldn't be seen as somebody who's just kind of just celebrating American democracy. He's explaining it. He comes, he's a person of the French elite who's explaining it, sometimes criticizing it too. uh, And definitely, at the very least, explaining it maybe even in, you know, generally a positive way for this French audience. So you get things. But, you know, in the process, I think – He's become popular in America because it was someone from the outside saying what's good about um, America in the Jacksonian era that he was in. No novelty, he writes, struck me more vividly during my stay there than the equality of conditions. No sooner do you set foot on American soil than you find yourself in a sort of tumult. A confused clamor rises on every side and a thousand voices are heard at once. Each expressing some social requirements. All around you, everything is on the move. Um, Americans of all ages, all stations of life, and types of disposition are forever forming associations. There are not only commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but others of a thousand types religious, moral, serious, feudal, very general and very limited, immensely large. And those very minute. Tocqueville says that Americans formed groups when they wanted to hold a celebration, to found a church, to build a school, to distribute books. Finally, if they want to proclaim a truth or propagate some feeling, they form an association. Where in France, you would find the government, in the United States, you are sure to find an association. The people reign over the American political world as God rules over the universe. And he's noting that there, while there are still many property requirements for voting, they're beginning to disappear at the time he's going. We're, we're in the Jacksonian era, the beginning of a lot of those state laws changing, where you're at least getting to every white male voting. Eventually, we'll get to all males, and then um, way too late, of course, All females as well. Now, there's a couple things changing. I think, first of all, Tocqueville likes that America has this really decentralized small government. And you can't say that about today. I mean, that's not what he observed in the Jacksonian era. You can't say about today. There are cases where, just like in his France, the government is taking certain roles that maybe associations did. So you could look at that as a change and something to be careful of. Um, the other thing is voting. I mean, there's definitely voting restrictions and laws and things like that. And this would be not seen kindly by Tocqueville or not seen as a good direction to go if we're really making it harder to vote. And I know that's a debate. But um, I think in some cases it's pretty obvious what various legislatures are doing. He, But he talks about things that we don't always talk about. Uh, I have talked about it on this program. Cokeville doesn't just say rah, rah, America. He's a little bit questioning at the end of whether of whether it's working. It depends on themselves whether equality is to lead to servitude or freedom, knowledge or barbarism, prosperity or wretchedness. That's how he ends his book. Because he feels that a democracy might create people who, now that they're all equal, will end up uh, actually creating a larger government. They don't need the government to protect them. is kind of his point. It's a little bit outdated point. So that they'll um, just keep giving away rights to the government. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting point. These are the things to look at for Tocqueville. You know, so you see these very positive signs of more podcasts than ever before, more people talking and listening and more venues to listen than ever before, mixed with also some troubling signs that social media brings, like maybe some intimidation, harassment, doxing and things like that. And the much maligned Senate, which doesn't allow for people to do things. You know, um, uh, there's this great moment I described in the impeachment cast, where Aaron Burr, who's vice president, gets up and makes a speech, a farewell speech, uh, to the Senate. He's about to leave as vice president. Jefferson's not happy with him. He'll end up prosecuting him later in his second term. And, you know, we don't think of Jefferson as a tyrant like that, but Burr gives a speech defending the Senate as the place where a tyrant will fall. And you see there um, that... You know um, that mechanism happening. It's it's often difficult um, to stand up, but uh, you know those are the mechanisms you got to watch for.